Well, church, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, the uh, elders have asked me to make a comment that we told you that we we're going to come back to you in October about the Welcome Center. And so the elders, after a meeting and prayer and lengthy discussion, have uh, voted to pursue that Welcome Center, which requires some action on your part that is forthcoming. It's going to be built concurrently with the sanctuary, remodeling areas around here, Welcome Center, refurbishing this room. So we're going to go forward, and our hopefully get-in date is going to be Easter of next year. I always say, well, it's Easter. People always say, well, what year? Easter 2016. So that's happening. Our purpose statement as a church is equipping people to pursue Christ passionately to impact their culture. And this morning, I want to highlight a ministry in our church that is a precious, precious ministry, and that's called the Friends Ministry. We have a special Sunday school class for uh, children with special needs, and we have 15 or so children registered aged 3 through 5th to 6th grade, and they require one adult per child, and we're able to do this to give the families a respite and let them come to worship but these dear people just week after week serve and care. And this is very precious to the heart of the Lord. Matthew 25, 40, Jesus says, Inasmuch as you've done to the least of these, my brothers, you do it to me. So when we defend and protect and care for those who would not be elevated in our culture, we're making a huge statement regarding the dignity of life and the worth of every woman and man and boy and girl. So I want to thank that ministry for what they do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the Scripture. And we pray you take the Bible and make it rich in our lives by the Holy Spirit. We come to you with joys and sorrows, with upbeat moments and really downcast days. But we come to you this morning because you are the one who says to us, cast all your anxieties upon me because I care for you. So we do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. A hero, I said last week as we began our study of a small portion of Mark and looked at the life of John the Baptist, a hero is a person of distinguished courage or ability, admired for their deeds and noble qualities. A hero. And I said last week that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, was a hero, the paradigm of being a hero. Um, and we talked about those qualities that made him a man who was heroic, number one. He understood his place. He said, he must increase, but I must decrease. He says in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, he says, I, I baptize you, but after one comes one whose shoelaces or sandals I cannot touch. I'm not worthy to touch. He said also, secondly, that John the Baptist was a hero because he understood his message. His message was repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. When Christ started his public ministry, he said, repent because the kingdom of God is here. When the apostles preached in the book of Acts and the other New Testament books, they said, repent because the kingdom of God is advancing. Repentance is turning from the old way and running to the new because you've seen the odious nature of sin and the beauty of Christ. So yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, there was an editorial entitled Homefront Hero. It was about a woman who died this week whose name was Sybil Stockdale. Sybil Stockdale's husband, James Stockdale, was, along, was the highest-ranking POW in Vietnam. He served for seven years. He was beaten time after time. He would, he would 
cut himself or disfigured himself so he couldn't be used for propaganda films. He was a man of incredible courage. He was given the Congressional Medal of Honor after he got back from Vietnam. But during his captivity, Sybil Stockdale was told, don't, don't speak about these things because we're in negotiations. If you speak out, then it may hinder the negotiations for prison release. And she did that for several years, and then she said, enough of this. And she established an organization to speak out about the abuses, the horrendous torturings that were going on with our men who were captured by the North Vietnamese. And to speak out for those who were missing in action. And she was a woman of incredible courage and valor. And so the Wall Street Journal calls her a home front hero. And she was. And I said last week, let me say again, that we are called as men and women of God to be men and women of nobility. Who speak graciously. Who care for people. Who who. who, who lay it out. One reason John the Baptist was a hero was that he spoke with appropriate boldness, and so should we. We should be people who stand in the gap and say, I'm not called to an inconsequential lifestyle. I'm called to consequence and service and to impact the coming generations. I have one life. I want to live it with dignity as unto the Lord. And so John the Baptist was the forerunner of the coming Messiah. Malachi chapter 4, one verse, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this morning, I want to continue the study of John the Baptist, one more look at his life, and talk about the the practices and the environment and the mental attitude that gave him a heroic impulse. And we need to have, have the same practice and environment and the impulse to be men and women of, no, of nobility. Number one, John the Baptist was a man of the desert. In Luke chapter 1, it says this, And the child, John the Baptist, grew and became strong in the spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. It says in Mark chapter 1, our focal passage today, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 40, verse 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. A desert person, a man who cried, who came in out of the wilderness. And I say that John the Baptist was a man of the desert because here's my principle. It is easier to hear from Abba Father by the power of the Holy Spirit when you're in his presence and you can think and you're quiet. It's just easier to hear from Abba Father. I, I, I look, I've looked at this passage and thought about it and prayed over it, and I've, I've, I've wondered why the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to put verse 6 of chapter 1 in the Bible. Listen. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So what? 
I know that he came in the spirit of Elijah, and that kind of a throwback to the prophetic dress of old. But, but, but why, why that verse? Why talk about locusts and wild honey, which was a kosher food. There's nothing outside of the dietary regimen of the Jews of that day that would set him apart. It's okay to eat locusts and wild honey. And I, th- I think the reason that verse is there, in my personal opinion, is just is that John was willing to be different. Now, some people are different for different sake. I'm not arguing for that. What I'm saying is when I look at James chapter 4 that says friendship with the world is enmity or hatred toward God, that's a strong statement. And what, what that means, church, is that, is that if, if I crave the applause of the culture at large that is in loggerheads with the purposes of God, if I crave that to the exclusion of of seeking to honor God, I cannot say that God is my friend. And I think that John the Baptist, leather belt, camel hair, locust wild honey, that little verse is just, just a statement saying he was willing to be different. He was a desert warrior. He was a man of the desert. God is found by people who seek him. You develop intimacy as you seek him. As a staff, we're trying to memorize some verses in the passage we've been, we've been memorizing is Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 and following. And it says this, it says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, inclining your heart to wisdom and giving your ear to understanding, listen, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord God gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, and he is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And I read that, and I go, you know, it doesn't say if you kind of approach God in the laissez-faire attitude and in Susan's spirit and say, well, maybe, maybe I'll do this hidden misnomer. You, you seek for it. You seek to know the, the, the knowledge of God and to walk in the majesty of the fear of God like you search and seek for silver or buried treasure in your backyard. God will be found by those who call out for him. If you, if you call out for insight, and you lift your voice for understanding, then I go, God, give me, a, give me a heart that seeks. John the Baptist was a man of the desert where he could hear from God. Well, I think of the verse in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the New Testament, which should be a banner verse for the child of God that says that, that, that without faith it's impossible to please him for everyone who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It rewards with his presence, with his power, with his affirming embrace of love. Oh, it's just good to hear by the power of the Holy Spirit, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Or Jesus says in Matthew 6, you all know this verse, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus is talking about clothes, these will be added unto you, uh, all these things added unto you, but the issue is seek. So, so my issue is, I ask myself, 
Have I been in the presence of the Lord to hear from him in quietness as I read the Bible? Do, do, do I quietly listen to hear from the Lord? Have I been in his presence? I've asked several people this question the last couple of weeks because I was dealing with this text. And I said, in your opinion, what hinders intimacy with God? What hears, What hinders hearing from the scripture and application as you read it and think through it, what hinders intimacy with God? And let me tell you my thought, and some people have the same thought, and I'll, the background is this. There's a, guy, there's a guy named Blaise Pascal who died in 1662, a long time ago. Here, 1662, so 350 years or so ago, all right? 300 and, well, 50. So Pascal wrote a book entitled The Pensees or Thoughts. And he has just a series of thoughts. He was an incredibly brilliant mathematician and a believer in Christ. And so one of his statements that you've probably heard bantered around or you know, turned upside down is, is this. The, the, the primary problem with, with mankind is that they cannot sit in their rooms and be quiet. So really? The primary problem with mankind is they cannot sit in their room and be quiet. He said, what? what, what? What he's saying is that because when you're quiet, you see the depth of your sin and your need and your shortcomings, and you can't stand it. And so later he wrote, because man can cannot be quiet, they have crowded their lives with diversions. I went, diversions? 16 and 62? No electricity? No sports center? No iPad? Really? Diversions? And I thought, what would old Pascal say if it came into in our 2015? As I thought about that, you know, so, so my, my, what hinders intimacy with God? Here's, here's this. I, 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 the information highway. Um, I'm not quiet. I'll confess to you this. I um, am early riser because I go to bed early. There's a cause and effect there. And so this happens frequently. I'm, I'm, really, I'm, really get, I'm really in the study. I'm reading the Bible. I'm thinking. I'm writing some things down. And as I'm thinking, I have this thought. I wonder if anybody won a ball game last night. So it's Wednesday morning. You don't play on Tuesday night. I know the answer, but I still think I need to check ESPN. So laptops in there. I just just thirty seconds. I'm just ESPN. Boom, and then all these articles come. I said, "What? I need to read that and read that." Thirty minutes later, I get back to my study. Happens frequently. It, you, it, it just is. So the New York Times had an article recently, and the, the leading story said that smartphones are not accessories, but psychologically potent devices that change not just what we do, but who we are. And then the New York Times article said that the year 2009 was a watershed moment in the history of the Western world, really in the whole world. In 2009 was the year that conversation died when smartphones went mainstream. Nine out of ten cell phone users admit to having used their phones during the last social gathering they attended. Simon Cooper, who writes for FT.com, writes, quote, For many young people, life now happens on phones. With everything else, studies, school, 
face-to-face interaction serving as a mere backdrop, close quote. Many th- they said this. This is the Times. I don't know where they get this. But psychologists have found a 40% decline in empathy among college students, with most of the decline taking place after the year 2000. Studies have shown the mere presence of a phone makes face-to-face conversation between people more superficial since an interruption can happen at any moment. Binging on connectivity, like binging on food, is bad for you, and we need to establish a new social norm that will shame people who check their phones during mealtimes, meetings, or personal conversations. I read that and I thought, yeah. I thought about the number of times that I've been with people. I'm not fussing at anybody, but conversation. The phone rings. Oh, I need to take this. Well, if it's your spouse, I understand. If it's President Obama, I get it. But what about me? I mean, can't you just say to yourself, I will call them back in 10 or 15 minutes? Or I'll call my parents. This one's really funny. If you're older, you cannot not answer the phone. If you're over 65 or 70, you cannot not answer the phone. They, my mom and dad just cannot not answer the phone. I'll be sitting there. I'll, I'll be on the cell phone with my mama, my mama, who really does love me. And, and I'll hear the landline ring. And my mom says, got to go, boom. <laughs> and she, some telemarketer is trying to sell her something to make her life more fun. And I'm going, what about me, mama? No, here, I'm, I'm your son. Come on. But, but what I'm saying is, I, I think the immediacy of information, the constant interruption, hinders the ability to hear from God. So, 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 so my, my application is this. To, to hear from God, I need to have a, a desert experience in this regard, a place where I am alone, where I cannot be interrupted, and it needs to be a definite place, a definite time of the day, and a definite pattern. I do the, even, the uh, English study version daily Bible reading and I'll read, and I'll write a verse down, and I'll pray through a verse and circle a word or two, and that's, that's what I do. But it's a definite place, a definite time, and I cannot be disturbed. I turn everything off, usually. So, see, I think, I think this builds heroic impulses in our lives. The second thing that built heroic impulse in the life of, the, of John is, is that he had sustaining environments of grace. He had a godly mom and dad, Zachariah and Elizabeth. In fact, John's birth is spoken of in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, John's daddy is a part of the priestly group, and he is in the temple offering a sacrifice, and the people are outside waiting for him to come back out. And while he's in the sacrifice, or in the, in the temple offering a sacrifice, this is what happens. It's, 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 it's dauntingly humorous. Listen. So he's, he's there, this is Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife, who was, who was a relative of Mary, the mother of Christ. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were well advanced in years. So they're beyond the years of childbearing. So, so Zechariah, Zach, is in the temple and he's praying and offering his prayers to the Lord representing the people of Israel. And this is what happens. An angel of the Lord appeared standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Luke chapter 1, verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, and he will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, but he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, a throwback to the Nazarite vows. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go before him, before the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And John said, you got to be kidding me. I'm old. My wife is beyond childbearing years. And this is what happens. The angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their due time. So he becomes really unable to speak for about 10 months or so. And then his wife gives birth to this baby, and he gives this incredible prophetic prayer in Luke chapter 1. He says, this is in fulfillment to the promise given to Abraham. Just read for a few verses here. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What a, what a prayer. It says, you, my son, are Elijah that was prophesied. You'll prepare a way for the Lord. So, so, so John was raised in this familial embrace that is God-honoring, God-fearing, where they recounted the way Gabriel appeared to your dad and how your dad didn't believe him, and yet several months later your mom is pregnant and she gives birth, and all of a sudden his tongue was unloosed, and he said his name shall be called John, and then he gives this incredible prophecy that's recorded in Luke chapter 1, and what a family to be raised in. So one reason John the Baptist had heroic impulses that he was raised in an environment of familial grace. And so I say to you who are parents of young children, people that are going to have a child in the next few months, people with older children, you raise your children in an environment where Christ is supreme and the Word of God is your sustenance, and you will have children, by God's grace, who have heroic impulses. And some of you say, well, that, that's, that's good for them, but I come from a broken, dysfunctional cast out home. I, I, my parents deserted me or one or the other when I was young. What about me? And I say, well, if, wherever you are, you've been redeemed by the work of Christ and you start a new tradition and you stand up and you say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I will raise the coming generations to the best of my ability in the way of Christ because environments of familial strength produce men and women with heroic impulse. Even if you're 65 and you've just come to faith, look at your neighbors or your grandchildren say, I will stand in the gap for them. 
The second environment of grace is he had a band of brothers. And I love this about John. He had a band of brothers who lived with him and walked with him. They were called his disciples. In Luke chapter 8, there's a story told we can't get into, but John the Baptist had the audacity to confront a leader who had been who was married to his brother's wife. He had seduced her out of his brother's arms, or she had seduced him out of his obligations, and they were living together in a flagrantly immoral lifestyle. And John the Baptist said, you are breaking the heart of God, and you're calling judgment upon yourself. And the husband and the wife didn't like it. He was put in prison. The husband was afraid to touch John the Baptist because he knew God's hand was upon him, but in a strange series of events, John lost his head. He was decapitated as a birthday present to this immoral woman's daughter. It's a seedy story. But John had the audacity to speak to this ruler. He's thrown in prison. He's laying every night on the rotting straw of a Judean prison eating gruel. And yet the Bible says here in Luke chapter 7 verse 18, the disciples of John the Baptist reported all these things to him, what was going on. So, so you, you read this, and his men are sitting outside the prison cell, either during visitation hours or talking over the wall to him, telling him what's going on, encouraging him as he's living in this dire strait of filth, destitute, knowing that his life may be forfeited at any minute. But what plagues John the Baptist is this. Have I misread, misheard the reality of Messiah King? In his deepest, darkest moments, he doubts. And so he says to his men, says he called two of his disciples to him, and he sent them to the Lord Christ, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Are you Messiah? And when the men had come to the Lord, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight, and he answered them. He answered them. I think Jesus is so tender here. He says, Go. And tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, tell him I'm Messiah. Tell him there are messianic signs that accompany my coming. And I, so they go back to John, and they, they, they tell him. And then Christ goes into this a brief statement about John and how among those born of women, there's never been one greater than John the Baptist, but he who's least in the kingdom has a more privileged position than John the Baptist does. It's an amazing statement. And I, I just thought John had heroic impulses because he had friends who walked with him. There's a movie years ago, 1997, entitled As Good As It Gets, and it stars Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt. And Jack Nicholson is a man who has uh, incredible issues. Uh, he has you know, obsessive-compulsive disorder. 
He is extremely socially awkward and inappropriate. He is just a train wreck. And in his mess, he meets a young single mom who's a waitress at the restaurant he goes to every day and orders the same things at the same place and makes everything just the right way. And, and they develop a friendship, and he asks her to go out to eat one night, and she's fully aware of how inappropriate he is and how messed up he is. And so they're sitting in this very, very nice restaurant. And Jack Nicholson, who's playing this really bizarre guy, I love Jack Nicholson, looks at her and says, I'm going to give you a compliment. And she says, I am terrified over what you might say right now. And he says, well, the other night we started talking, and you really set me straight. And I hate to take pills. He says, I hate medication. And yet the psychiatrist tell me that 60% or so of the people that take this medication with my disorder get better. So after we had our conversation, the next day, I started taking my pills. He sat back with a smug smile. And she goes, I'm not so sure what you're saying. And then he says this, you make me want to be a better man. And she says, that may be the best compliment I've ever received. When I think about that, th th that should be a purpose statement for every marriage, every friendship in the body of Christ, every community group, every men's group, every women's group. That, that when I spend time with the brothers and sisters, when, I, when, I, when I'm with them, they make me want to be a better person. There are people in, my wife has done this, my kids have done this, my, my son-in-law and daughter-in-law are doing this. Now, I have friends that do this. I am a blessed, I am covered up with people who as I'm with them, they encourage and bless and I see Christ alive in their lives and they make me want to be a better man. John had that with his band of brothers. Let me tell you a quick story about one of my heroes. This is an artist rendition. He died in 373, so no Polaroids, you know, no selfies. This is Athanasius. Athanasius was a, a, a champion for biblical truth. He lived in an era when there were people who were saying, well, Christ was a created being because if Christ is a created being, then maybe he doesn't call this is what they thought. They didn't really call the shots, so maybe we can manipulate people through political power. And Athanasius says, no, Christ is eternally God. He is one with the Father. There was never a time when the Son was not. You can't control God. God controls you. And there's this pitched battle going on. And, and so Athanasius won the day, but periodically the people would come to power. They didn't like what he was saying because he wouldn't kowtow to the rulers. And they would say, Athanasius, to the desert. So he becomes the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, which was a big zip code at the age of 30. He's bishop for 45 years of the same zip code area. And during those 45 years, he spent 17 of those years in the desert, one time for six years. And so the rulers think, thought, you know, if we can get Athanasius out of here, out of metropolitan areas and make him go into the desert, then he'll be beaten down. And so a guy would come to power who loved the truth of God or was amiable to it, and he'd bring Athanasius back, and he always came back stronger. And you go, how in the world do you go to the desert and come back stronger? What they didn't know was this. There's a group of people in the desert called the Desert Monks. 
who studied the apostolic literature, who had renounced worldly goods, who served and cared for the poor and those who could not protect themselves. And they were a band of brothers who prayed together and worshiped together and thought together and, and talked about the, the apostolic literature together. And, and he would go there and he would be with these men who were sold out for Jesus and he would always come back stronger and filled with the Holy Spirit because he had a band of brothers. He was so impressed by one man named Antony that he wrote a small book about his life that became a classic in Western literature, Athanasius. And so he had a band of brothers that he walked with. Church, we need bands of brothers in your community group, in your small group Bible study, in your relationships, people who speak Christ into your life. People live in such a way that when you're around them, you say in your heart of hearts, they make me want to be a better person. That develops heroic impulses in your life. Boom. Very quickly, I'll just say this. I was struck with reviewing 2 Peter 1 the other day about, about the character development of the Christian. And, and Peter says, make every effort to add to your faith diligence or energy. And to diligence and energy, add knowledge and self-control and perseverance. And then the last two character attributes, he's all about developing, developing, developing. The last two were, and to this add brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness add love. I thought, wow, you've made me for relationships. I need to have relationships that develop heroic impulses in my life. Thirdly, John the Baptist had this mindset. People, their decisions lead to an eternal destiny. So he took men and women seriously. It's easy to not take people seriously. And by that I mean it's easy to look at people. And I think if you, as you get older, it becomes more pronounced. It has been with me. Say, oh, well, I've, there's nothing new under the sun. We've been here before. I've seen this before. I've seen this marriage break up before. I've seen this happen. And really to become kind of unempathetic and uninvolved in people's lives, fight that. And so when you look at people, you realize they have an eternal destiny. And I say to you, young people, please hear me. The decisions you're making today will impact the way you live in 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years. Be careful. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. There will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Sometimes I just feel like a flagman saying, don't, don't, don't do this. Make good decisions. The Lord is good and glorious and beautiful and triune and splendid. Hear his way. So that's, that's why I took people seriously. I read this passage last week. So these people come out to observe the baptism. They were just there to mock and belittle and have their way with John the Baptist. And he says to the crowds, he says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with your repentance? And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, 
The axe is at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And He says, don't, don't, don't come to me with this hodgepodge. If we have ethnicity, we're part of God's chosen people. He says, you know, really God can raise up children for himself from stones. He says, realize that the, the axe is at the root of the tree. The day of reckoning is coming. Messiah King is walking among us. I was thinking about this in um, John chapter 18. Christ has been praying through the night on the night of his passion. And some people come up the hill with their torches. It's an unruly mob. And Jesus steps forward really to protect his men. And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. And they fall to the ground. It's amazing to me. They fall to the ground when they see the majesty of Christ. Wow. And that was before his death, before his resurrection, before his ascension. And we know from Revelation that the day is coming when the Lord comes again. People who do not know him will cry to the mountains to fall upon us, to hide us from the face and the wrath of the Lamb of God. We walk among people who, if they were to die today, would spend eternity separated from the Lord. That they would. And so we take people and their decisions with great sobriety.